Hi, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with clinical psychologist and researcher, Dr. Orr Degan. Orr earned his PhD in clinical psychology from the New School for Social Research in New York City. He has conducted research at the Developmental Stress and Prevention Lab at Stony Brook University and at the Center for Attachment Research in New York City. Orr currently serves as a professor of clinical psychology at Long Island University, while also maintaining his private practice. Orr and I discuss the topic of attachment, which deals with the bonds children establish with their primary caregivers, and how these relationships influence one's development and personal relationships throughout life. Orr makes a very convincing case for the explanatory power of attachment, especially how it relates to the development of early coping mechanisms. One of the big takeaways I had from our discussion was the importance of balance in the parent-child relationship. While not being present to serve as an emotional anchor for your child can lead to some negative outcomes, not allowing them off their metaphorical leash to explore the world independently can also have some equally problematic effects. I also enjoyed how clearly or articulated the emotional needs of young children. It's all too common for parents to attempt to modify their children's emotional expressions out of their own desire for convenience or peace. While setting behavioral boundaries is still an important part of parenting, knowing when to remove judgment and criticism and letting children experience their emotions while using you as a reliable base seems to be the skill set that will foster development the most. If you've ever spent time wondering about the patterns that you exhibit in your relationships, perhaps a constant fear of abandonment or feelings of discomfort when you get too close to someone, then I hope this episode gives you some perspective and insight. Enjoy. Okay, today I am here with Or Degan. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for inviting me, Ryan. I'm happy to be here. So Or uh, researches an area in psychology known as attachment, uh, kind of falls under the umbrella of developmental psychology. Uh, why don't you just start by uh, telling the listeners what attachment is? Yeah, it's uh, it's often time is taken for a lot of things. So how about we start with what I believe it really is? Really, it's a attachment represent um, a specific type of relationship between uh, two people, and it, it really reflects um, a relatively small aspect of human life. That is, uh, when we are under distress, um, and so we might have multiple uh, relationships in our life, many relationships perhaps, but only a few of them. Uh, might be uh, uh, thought of as attachment relationship. And those attachment relationships are normally um, formed earlier on in life. We might talk about this a little bit later, but um, we really um, are thinking about figures who can provide us care, specifically uh, emotional care at times of need. When, um, when we uh, um, cue for distress, when we feel sick, uh, when we need emotional support. Those who consistently or inconsistently will learn uh, to be there for us at times of need uh, are uh, thought of as attachment figures. And now, does attachment relate to both these very early stages in life where, you know, I'm picturing crying infant and the mother uh, is attending to that infant and soothing the infant? And does it also extend into the younger, you know, the ages one, two, and three, where uh, where the child is given some space to play? What what are the critical ages for this this attachment process? Yeah, um, Bowlby, the father of attachment research, uh, 
spoke about attachment as something that we have from the cradle to the grave. Um, so we are born uh, with this uh, natural tendency, really evolution selected for it, uh, mainly because we need us to help survive earlier on in life. To your question, uh, attachment uh, relationships, attachment behavior, something that reflects uh, us as infants going to figures or needing figures at times of need is something that we really think about forming uh, as early as uh, one year or a little bit prior to one or the first year uh, of life. Um, and this really sets the stage for our understanding of uh, who really is there for us at times of need earlier on. Um, there are multiple ways uh, of assessing attachment throughout the lifespan, but it's clear that all of us uh, develop uh, attachment, uh, or most of us develop attachment to at least one figure, and that kind of influences the way or the pattern that uh, we later on in life attach to other figures. If earlier on in life we're talking about a mother, a father, or other close other sometimes, grandmother, or even an older sibling, later in life uh, it's often cased uh, we're talking about peers or romantic relationships. Um, it's uh, yet to be uh, all that clear uh, whether earlier attachment is associated directly with the way we attach to others. And there are multiple ways uh, of thinking why uh, we're still not uh, sure to understand that empirically. But conceptually, uh, there's definitely there are definitely attachment behaviors that can be observed way after the first year of life and really throughout the lifespan. Now... What exactly is the is, is the child looking for when they're uh, in this emotional state, and then they're seeking the their these these figures of attachment? Um, in in other words, is is the parent just being there enough? Is that does that explain most of the benefit? Just having the parent present, uh, or is it the case that being present is is inadequate and the parent has to sort of you know provide warmth and 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 you know they if, if the child's upset they have to soothe and they have to provide uh, emotional attention and 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 care um or is it just the case that being present gives you most of the benefits uh, it is a great question i can tell you from uh, my clinical experience that a lot of times when I start inquiring uh, to something that comes across as um, attachment-related experiences, oftentimes patients would tell me, you know, I, I don't I don't think I have any problems in my past. I definitely, certainly uh, don't think attachment applies because uh, uh, I know that every time I cried, I remember that mom used to be there. Um, why am I raising this right now? Because you're asking about presence. Is presence enough? Uh, or uh, when a patient says, mom, is there, is that enough for us? That's where we stop the line of uh, evaluation. The answer is no. Um, uh, what we are looking for very early on and really throughout the lifespan is proximity. So another way of thinking about attachment or attachment behaviors are proximity-seeking behaviors. Uh, earlier on, as you were saying, we are crying uh, as a way of cueing to mom or dad, hey, we need you close by. Uh, later on, as adolescents or adults, we text someone that we want to attend to us at times of need. Um, now, if we think about babies or children, uh, we can also think about a mom, for example, who, who is at home, especially in, in the past uh, years where some parents were at home during the pandemic. Uh, presence was not really the problem, um, but there is the level of quality of responding to the child's needs uh, that can vary significantly between caregivers. So for example, uh, a baby can cry uh, or a child can ask mommy um, and mommy um, is in the next room and child know that mommy is in the next room, but mommy also does not come out or mommy yells, not now, I can't do that. Now, of course, this uh, happens from time to time, when, but when it starts to be consistent, there is some aspect in the child understanding uh, that starts to uh, develop and consolidate around the idea that mom is probably not going to attend to my needs, even though she might mm -hmm. be there physically. Mm -hmm. um, 
Now, earlier on, these needs especially revolve around, um, I, should call, I should call them instrumental needs, like feeding. Uh, when we are in pain, we want to reduce the pain. But there are definitely emotional needs as well, such as being soothed and feeling less anxiety uh, when the world sometimes can feel like that. Um, yeah, it, it feels... Uh, it it feels familiar. This idea, if if anyone has been around young children, uh, you know there is this very strong desire to feel uh, needs met, right? Like you know, because most children they don't, you know, a, a lot of their needs they can't physically do. So they, it kind of makes sense that they're demanding this sort of uh, attention from their from their parent, right? Absolutely. And remember, this is uh, something that evolution selected for. Um, think about a baby that does not cue, hey, I am in need. Uh, it takes a lot of time for human babies to actually be able to take care of themselves. So this is something that is ingrained in our DNA, so to speak. Um, so yes, we need this to survive. But later on in life, it might be less of a survival life or death type of thing and more about um, getting proximity because we we need emotional support. Yeah. And now, is it the case that, because the more I think about this, the more I think about the transition from needing parent to take care of basic needs to independence. There Clearly, there has to be some sort of transition. I'm curious... From an attachment perspective, how does a parent build and go from I will be there and give you what you need to these are the things now that you can do on your own? Well, uh, I think this is a great question, especially because there's not much attention when we talk about uh, in everyday life about attachment in uh, when we talk about uh, exploration or, or independence. Uh, we really talk about, I want to be close to someone who can take care of me. But really, the two are intertwined. When we do have someone who uh, we feel secure around or uh, who's functioning as our safe haven, uh, to whom we can go to at times of need, it is exactly that secure base that can allow us to go out and explore the world and, to your question, uh, be independent. Uh, so the two are really uh, closely uh, related to one another. Um, it is when we don't trust one or multiple caregivers that we might also have troubles developing independence because we don't have enough uh, attentional resources to go out and explore physical or mental environment. We really try to stick as close as possible to those who can help us at times of need. And if we don't trust that they can do that, um, we're really kind of um, hijacked by this anxiety of What's what's going to happen if something bad will happen to me? Who's going to be there next to me? Um, so the independence is really important uh, aspect of secure attachment. Mm -hmm. uh, having said that, I also want to mention that earlier on in life, it is very appropriate not to develop much independence, although I understand that uh, there is a, a lot of movement toward uh, thinking about children uh, needing to be independent. But Really, independence, uh, we really see that uh, developing significantly around uh, adolescence. Uh, that's where we actually uh, wanting to develop uh, relational independence, go out, explore relationship with peers and romantic relationships. And this is exactly where we also start seeing uh, more uh, psychological difficulties, letting go of parents. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so I, I hope this uh, answers the question uh, that, um, that you raised. Yeah. And it, it reminds me of this idea that, and you, you kind of touched on it earlier, that that as much as we value independence at those young ages, it's it can be it can be a problem to be uh, too independent, too exploratory. Um, it's actually functional to rigidly follow what mom or dad says in very specific contexts, right? Like the, the, um, you know, uh, don't, don't touch, uh, don't touch the outlet, right? The child that rigidly follows it without questioning, 
right? They're they're going to avoid the electric shock and a potential, you know, deadly encounter. You know, the child that's that's rogue and and you know, an independent at this young age where where you know, you can kind of build a story like, oh, that's good for them. If they're going to doubt what mom and dad are saying and then go be curious, you know, they're going to have a really bad outcome. Uh, and it kind of underscores this idea that that independence needs to be mixed with sort of these these boundaries, perhaps drawn by the parents. Right. That's right. And and we can think about one category that researchers assess uh, in terms of attachment uh, is one category of insecure attachment is the avoidant insecure attachment. And uh, this babies seem to direct their attention away from parents at times of need when they are distressed. So you might think about it as a very independent baby uh, who doesn't need or doesn't need to show or feel like I don't need to show that I'm under distress when when mom is leaving the room and I'm in this uh, strange place by myself. But really what we know about those babies is that the cortisol levels, kind of the uh, the anxiety levels manifested in uh, the physiological responses uh, is sky high. Um, and they develop an expectation that they're going to be alone in whatever difficulties they are facing. Um, so we got to be careful when we think about independence, especially in young ages, uh, where it might not be all that appropriate um, to develop. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, some of your work, I believe, uh, kind of looked at homes with uh, a, a single parent versus uh, two parents, obviously, that that can kind of have. It seems to me that would have some interesting uh, impacts on attachment, uh, especially you know if you have sort of one uh, style of attachment or trust in one parent, but you don't have that trust in the other. Could you talk a little bit about uh, about that dynamic of of a single parent versus dual parent home? Yes. Uh... Again, if we're talking, if you're thinking about attachment from an evolutionary perspective, um, infants are born uh, in communities. Uh, the fact that in some uh, places in the world today, uh, we don't have many caregivers does not reflect uh, most of the history of humankind. Um, and that raises the question of, okay, well, we, when we're talking about attachment, we're talking about a baby needing a figure at times of need. Um, who are we really talking about? Are we talking about a single caregiver, which I think for the most part, this is what people think about when we think about attachment. We, we think about normally, uh, by and large, attachment to the mother. Um, but this raises the question, is it really the case? Or do other uh, figures uh, are there for us um, that we develop attachment with? Um, so uh, the line of research that I'm uh, right now leading is really a continuum of uh, research that started some 30 years ago, uh, but it's kind of uh, the interest around it has been uh, developed recently, which is um, do babies and children with multiple secure attachments are better off uh, across multiple developmental domains compared to those who might still live with two parents, but be securely attached to only one parent, meaning feel uh, that they can go to that parents in times of need, but they don't feel like that with the other parent. And comparing those two groups to those children who have no secure attachment, not, not to the father and not to the mother. And by the way, I talk about fathers and mothers because this was our research design, but of course we know that there are also two parent, so-called non-traditional uh, families with two fathers, two mothers. And in some respects, we have more than two uh, caregivers, depending on the culture we're talking about. And interestingly, what we found is a couple of things. First, um, those who have two secure attachment, both to mother and to father, um, tend to have significantly uh, lower depression uh, and anxiety compared to those who have either one secure attachment or no secure attachment, right? So there is something to be said about how sad and anxious we are given how many secure attachment we develop earlier in life. Uh, in a recent research uh, that uh, is now uh, in press, we also found that those who have too secure attachment, again, both to mother and to father, tend to have uh, better language skills compared to those who have only one secure attachment uh, and zero secure attachment. 
Now, one would say, okay, well, why do we care about that? Well, because number one, language skills are predictive of academic uh, uh, competence later on in life, and that could bring happiness to, for one. And number two, we also know that language skills are associated with depression and anxiety later on in life. Uh, we might not get into the mechanisms today, but uh, this is the case. So uh, really, both cognitively uh, and emotionally, um, it's worthwhile uh, for families uh, to develop or for babies to develop attachment security with two parents compared to uh, only one or none of them. So when children are building this secure attachment, they're they're experiencing distress. They have a a caregiver, ideally a parent or an adult or someone like that in their immediate proximity, they approach the figure and the figure sort of allows them to diffuse their emotional reaction to whatever the situation is they were in. Um, mm -hmm. Now, if that pattern, if they start to realize that they're not getting that, it seems to me that a child would 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 get it somewhere like they would either turn to something like, like let's just say, uh, you know, sports, for example, like I have an activity. And when I do this activity, like play football, um, it makes me feel secure. And anytime I'm stressed, I go to football or take an even more sort of out there example, like a TV show, like. I feel uncomfortable in the social situation. I don't get anything from my parents. My TV show, I go watch the show, like a sort of psychological baba, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Is is it the case that we see children uh, that that don't have their parents providing them the the soothing behavior or the attachment that they need? Do do children go to other things? And if they do, does it? even come close to giving them the the have to having the benefits of of a secure parent right again a great question because uh it brings also about the question of uh whether we are doomed if we don't develop uh secure attachment to our parents so we'll get to that in a second but to your question uh it, it depends uh definitely uh, children develop uh, attachment relationship with uh, caregivers that are not their biological parents. And that include later on in life, uh, teachers, mentors. It can also include uh, grandparents and older siblings. Um, really, we're thinking about uh, human beings uh, who uh, children uh, and later on uh, older uh, children, adolescents and adults feel like they can go to at times of need. And as a result, they would feel a little bit uh, better. They would be soothed and go back to uh, whatever they did before the onset of the distress. Um, it's interesting that you're bringing something like uh, sports activity, because one would say, or one could think that sports activity decreases anxiety, and it, it definitely is the case. Um, but to what degree one could uh, roam the earth, feeling that no matter what's coming my way, I can rely on the, on the football uh, field to, to help me. Um, I'm not quite sure. It's uh, it's something that should be tested. My tendency is to think that we do need um, uh, we do need a human figure uh, to rely on, even if it's not a parent, in order to feel or or to existentially that we are not alone in this world and that someone could help us to deal with whatever difficulty we're about to encounter. Mm -hmm. Now, the generally speaking, attachment has been. Uh, looked at in terms of categorical styles. Uh, most people that have heard of attachment will know that they're attachment styles. Um, and as, as I understand them, right, you've already mentioned secure, and then and then there's sort of this other category where the child di uh, had didn't get what they needed. The parent was sort of distant, and then there's a separate category where the parent was overbearing and didn't allow for enough independence and exploration and they become over-reliant. Um, mm -hmm. is, it, is it best to think of attachment styles as these three categories or is it a little bit more nuanced than that? It's definitely more nuanced uh, than that, but I do think that uh, the question is in place because we want to kind of think about, I think I want to 
talk with you about attachment in a way that can be more applicable to everyday life compared to what we do with this in research. Uh, the way I like to think about attachment or the way I talk about attachment that feels like resonating with a lot is uh, a way of uh, uh, thinking about it uh, on a continuum. Uh, where on one side, uh, I would call it uh, attachment uh, hyperactivation. Uh, that means that at times of need, uh, we not only seek support, we do that excessively. If you think about adolescents or adults, those are uh, those where uh, when something bad happens, they would text nonstop to everyone who would just listen. <laughs> and even if they don't, uh, they would keep doing that. Uh, why? Because their attachment system keeps alarming them, something bad is happening, you need to secure as many people as you can and as much support as you can in order to overcome this. On the other side of the continuum, we have those who tend to have uh, deactivating uh, behaviors at times of need. In other words, when something difficult is happening to them, especially emotionally, they would um, deactivate behaviors that uh, signal support. In other words, they would actually maybe resolve to going to their room or um, uh, all of a sudden become silent and not talk to, a, to anyone for, for days. Uh, they would certainly not tell anyone who's close to them that they are in need, probably because they developed an expectation that it's not going to help them all that much. And uh, in some individuals, it's actually going to be even worse if I tell you what's on my mind. Uh, because I learned that maybe mom or dad uh, dismissed it and made me feel like even more alone than not telling them at all. So uh, again, to your question, um, uh, I think of it as a continuum where on one side there is an excessive support seeking, on another side is um, an excessive um, uh, directing of attention away from people at times of need. Um, and the securely attached individuals are somewhere in the middle and they're more flexible uh, at times of need. They can, depending on the context or the figures around them, can be a little bit more uh, uh, demanding for uh, attention or can be a little bit more uh, uh, resulting into uh, their own uh, space, uh, but they are not excessive in any uh, direction. Um, I, I hope this kind of uh, mm -hmm. organizes our thoughts about uh, attachment throughout the lifespan, really. Yeah, uh now the I, th I think it does the uh, my next question is has to do with emotional uh, modeling so this process of building secure attachment uh, on, on on the part of the parents is it the case that they need to model emotional stability for their children in the sense of you know, demonstrating proper coping mechanisms and not, you know, flying off the handle? Um, or is it the or, or is it more that, you know, focused on the child? So what the, what the how the parents behave is completely separate from how they treat the child when the child is distressed. Right. So uh, children really learn about behaviors in the world and uh, what causes what in terms of their experiences, either by, as you suggested, modeling, uh, learning by looking at what my parent does uh, at times of stress. Um, attachment is more about uh, learning by experience. In other words, um, how does my parent respond to me when I'm under distress? Now, um, if the parents uh, show, if the parents who I go to at times of need show uh, extreme distress when I'm distressed, I'm starting to developing maybe an understanding and an expectation um, that maybe that parent is not necessarily the person I want to go to at times of need because they themselves cannot contain my difficulty. They cannot contain right. my anxiety and they would not make me feel better, which is the ultimate goal uh, of the attachment system. So, um, I don't know that it necessarily has to do with modeling calmness, uh, but really about attending to the child. Now, um, if I'm attending to the child, but doing it excessively with a lot of anxiety, if the child screams, I attend the child, but I scream with them. That's also uh, not a recipe for a secure attachment, again, because the child starts developing an expectation that I don't I don't trust that caregiver to help me at times of need. Um, 
So I, I, I don't know that there's one recipe to, to teach parents. We, we, we need to talk about this as well in detail, but um, it's really about uh, having an experience or allowing children to experience soothing rather than to model them how I feel as a parent at times uh, of distress. Yeah, let's let's dive right into this sort of uh, for a little bit, this one on one setting between parent and child, because it seems interesting to me that the experiences I've had uh, dealing with uh, with children, um, I've been in relationships with women that, that have had young children and it it is it it feels an awful lot like uh like you're walking a tightrope in the sense that you want to validate whatever they are feeling but validation doesn't mean give them everything they need in that exact moment and i'm not really sure you know like you said what this mix is but could you talk a little bit about about maybe common missteps uh, and and how parents in these one-on-one -on -one situations can can model the ideal sort of um, behavior. Yeah, I, I I actually stumble across this question explicitly uh, when um, I sit with my clients and they uh, sometimes um, raise the question, theoretical question, when we start working together, and they want to know how am I going to help them really. Um, and uh, right from, from the get-go, I tell them that, um, and this pertains to parent and child relationship as well, I probably might not necessarily know um, all that well uh, in advance how to solve all the problems um, that they might come up with. Um, but I think the main work is to allow them, if we can do that, to feel like no matter what is the problem, um, I'm going to be by their side to support them dealing with it. Now, that does okay. not mean that sometimes an advice might not come up, and I would share this with them, and that does not mean that a parent cannot come with a concrete advice to a child. Um, what you mentioned before about validating, I, I would call it, I will take a step further and call it acknowledgement. Like, I see you, child, or I see you, patient. Um, you're not alone in this uh, experience because, yes, uh, I validate what you're feeling is uh, only one step. Another is, is to uh, consistently allow them to feel um, that um, you keep being there until they feel better. Um, I remember that uh, in my own childhood, I sometimes uh, struggled with uh, this type of relationship with my dad, who's a very smart person and uh, would give me all kinds of advices that made me feel uh, better. Um, but it was not uh, lasting for long. He would give me a very good advice and would leave me uh, with it to do something with it. And so I'm, I'm going back to your question again about the validation. Uh, it's only part of the deal. If a parent wants um, um, to allow their children to really uh, feel better for a prolonged period of time, um, it, it's responding to them, but also giving them a feeling that um, I'm consistently here for you. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, now, there can we tease out impacts from genetics? I'm curious as to um, as to how you even go about measuring um, attachment, and and I know that you've you've linked attachment to some some of these interesting mental health outcomes. Um, of course, it's 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 always difficult, right? The 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 child grows up in the home with the parent but also shares half the dna with the parent and you, you know you you could argue that the parents attachment style or how they address the child is related to the child's temperament right kids have you know young children have a sort of you know personality i'm, I'm sure you could define it better um but how do we look at uh, how do we uh, separate uh, the effects of attachment from sort of genetic predispositions and temperament and things like that. Yes, um, this is uh, actually an ongoing debate uh, in, in the field uh, of attachment research as well as uh, temperament. Uh, and let's uh, just make sure that uh, we define temperament really it's a behavioral manifestation of uh, of our genetic load. So this is why sometimes we refer to 
difficult babies or uh, easy to warm up babies or difficult to warm up babies as something that is associated with the uh, genetics. It's kind of like the, right out of the box, you can see how babies behave. Um, and, and we're trying to tease, of course, uh, apart whether this influences how we attach to our parents, because one would say, really, that if I'm a difficult baby and I cry all the time, I absolutely have no way of attaching securely to my mom because she's simply going to be very mad at me all the time. Um, so uh, is that maybe what uh, causes insecure attachment, right? Um, it's me. It's my genetics. It's not necessarily how my mom reacts to my needs. Uh, there are ways to assess it. One way is to look at twin studies. Uh, I think uh, um, it's a little bit of a more complicated way of uh, explaining it, but I can definitely share with you that earlier on, uh, we could see that um, there is no association uh, between genetics and uh, the way twins uh, are attached to their parents. Um, another way to look at this uh, is to, and this is what we did recently, is to say something like this. Those of us who have difficult temperaments probably will have uh, two insecure attachments. And those of us who don't have difficult temperament would probably have two secure attachments with moms and dads. This is the logical hypothesis. If we're difficult babies, we're probably going to have difficult relationship with our parents. Now, what did we find uh, in a sample of 700-something uh, children? We found that there is an association, but it is very, very, very small. Uh, something about uh, we can explain variability in attachment patterns in children uh, with genetics by 1%. Something, again, like 1% of why they behave the way they do with their parents can be explained by their genetics. So it's not much. Um, there is an association, but it's very weak. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, now, <clears throat> the uh, a lot of the uh, interesting parts of attachment research relate to how childhood attachment to, to different parental figures uh, relates to intimate relationships. And, right, this general idea that uh, the attachment style that develops uh, just, just sort of bleeds over and influences both how individuals choose mates and behave in relationships. Um, I'm curious as to just how well the data fit uh, sort of these stereotypes, because a lot of people can can very easily visualize some of these stereotypes with attachment when it comes to intimate relationships, right? So, you know, one of them is, for example, um, you know, a, a woman with with daddy issue, quote unquote, daddy issues, right? The idea that they seek out male partners that that uh, that are not good for them, that uh, are very similar to their their parents. So if, if dad was not around, they tend to develop intimate relationships with men that are also absent because that's what what is familiar to them. Uh, or for example, their uh, their uh, father or or parent was dependent on them as children. So then when they enter into intimate relationships, they want someone that relies on them, someone that they can take care of. Um, these stereotypes have been around for quite some time, and you can kind of have knowledge of them without knowing anything about attachment research. How well yeah. does the uh, the research fit these these uh, characterizations? Yeah, uh, I I I cannot tell you that the research actually uh, knows much about, or maybe I don't know about much about the research that knows uh, about these um, uh, stereotypes. I can tell you that what you are describing fits. Uh, very well with what Freud taught us early on in life. And he uh, he talked about something that is called repetition compulsion. Uh, we are finding ourselves in similar relationships, although they might hurt us, uh, because we we have this uh, tendency to resolve something um, that we did, we're not able to resolve growing up. So if we have, uh, to use your example, daddy issues, we'll look for those same uh, daddy-like characteristics in our uh, partner, not because we like to suffer, but because we want to correct them with another figure. 
Um, in my experience, a lot of the times it's actually the opposite. Uh, if we have daddy issues, or in other words, uh, in my understanding of the stereotypes, if we have a dad that was not there for us at times of need, was absent, um, we actually develop um, uh, quite a need to have what uh, what our dad did not give us. Uh, we're actually looking for this attention that was uh, never sought, uh, ne never given to us by our dad. So we actually look for the opposite. Um, now, I, I also want to mention that uh, research does not support that there is difference of attachment patterns in terms of, for example, distribution of secure, insecure attachment between um, attachment to uh, male figures or attachment to uh, female figures. Um, so I don't know necessarily uh, that, uh, you know, girls that grew up without a father would look for a specific uh, male figure that uh, that uh, resembles that uh, absent father. Um, I, I do tend to think that attachment is uh, not associated uh, with those kind of uh, stereotype, uh, simply because uh, it's very um, relationship specific. If we grow up um, with a specific uh, expectation that a parent would not be there for us at times of need uh it might be generalized to how we perceive others i don't know how it will play out in terms of actually choosing uh partners mm -hmm. well so then based on what we do know about attachment styles um could you talk a little bit of whether whether it's intimate relationships or mate selection um what are some of the adult outcomes that we know are linked to your attachment style at a young age? Uh, just before I answer this question, I want to also uh, mention something with respect to your uh, previous question. Research does show uh, that those who are securely attached uh, as classified by a specific tool, it's called the adult attachment interview, tend to actually end up having a partner who is also securely attached. We don't know why, but there is an association between whether or not you're secure and uh, whether your partner is secure. So uh, there is actually some research about that. Um, now, I, your question right now is about whether early childhood experiences actually uh, can, or early childhood uh, uh, attachment patterns um, predict all kinds of adult uh, outcomes. Um, this is, uh, this is a problematic area of research, uh, which we don't know much about because we don't have much longitudinal research. From what we do know is actually quite surprising. It does have uh, a, a relationship with later on outcomes, but most of all, the one outcome that stands alone above others is uh, academic outcome, which you would not necessarily uh, wow. predict. Um, and there are multiple hypotheses as to why. Um, if you look at adults predicting adulthood outcomes or children predicting childhood outcomes, you would see uh, way more significant results with respect to emotional outcomes, uh, social competence, as well as academic uh, competence. But from childhood to adulthood, uh, academic competence is really the one outcome that stands above uh, all as significant. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I as I did a, a small amount of research into attachment, I, I started thinking about, you know, things like, uh, like goal pursuit, uh, as sort of a very broad area, um, you know, being, you know, willing to take risks and pursue challenges as an adult. It, it seems as though you could predict that based on sort of some sort of childhood attachment in the sense of, you know, how do you, become successful at pursuing challenges. Well, if when you were younger, um, you know, independence did not create too much distress. Independence was something that was fostered. You were able to, you were given the opportunity to explore. Whereas, uh, you know, some children, when they explored, they, they, like you said, they, their cortisol spiked and they eventually just developed an aversion to, to feeling that way, or they didn't have proper coping mechanisms. It kind there's kind of a story there where if you don't have a secure attachment to a parent, it could potentially fracture your ability to approach challenges in a very broad way. But you're saying that we don't really know for sure uh, if, if that's the case. 
Um, especially in longitudinal studies where, you know, human beings are so complex. So many things happen uh, in life and so many figures come in and out of our lives. Um, so many uh, interplays between genetics and the environment uh, are going on. It's really hard to predict anything. The fact that something is associated with uh, early childhood experience is quite outstanding uh, in and of itself. Um, I think one thing that we can say is that if your attachment if your caregiving environment is stable, then you might think, okay, well, I was securely attached earlier on. It's highly likely that I will keep being securely attached because this much we do know. And if I keep being securely attached because my caregiving environment is stable across maybe the 15 or eight, first 18 years of my life, then we can, then we can definitely know uh, what the vulnerability or lack thereof will be for you as an adult. Uh, the problem begins where the caregiving environment is inconsistent. Then people switch from secure to insecure, from insecure to secure. So what we measure at one year old might not be relevant for uh, the attachment pattern or status at age three or age five. And that's why sometimes it's very hard to predict outcomes in adulthood. I see. Uh, so why don't we why don't we wrap up uh, talking a little bit about uh, you know. What do you do if you, uh, in terms of a clinician, how do you address uh, issues related to attachment style? And I'm not sure what age would be, you know, this question would be appropriate for, um, but I know that you incorporate your knowledge of attachment into a sort of clinical or therapeutic setting. Um, why, don't, why don't you talk a little bit about how... Uh, therapy or other types of treatments are designed to improve on, you know, issues that come up due to attachment? Um, I, I think one major thing that Bowlby talked about in attachment theory um, is highlighting is uh, the presence or absence of a secure base, which brings us to the beginning of our conversation today. Um, a lot of the clients that do uh, end up uh, coming into therapy uh, are those who never had a consistent, at least, if at all, secure base in their lives. In this regard, uh, I think it's my job uh, to try to develop a relationship that resembles as much as possible to a secure attachment uh, between the client and myself. Now, how do we do that? That's, a, that's another question. Um, uh, I think that there is something uh, to be said about developing or, or adjusting one's expectations of who's going to be by me at times of need. If I come to therapy and I don't trust anyone, how do I trust you, therapist, that you will be yeah. there at times of need? Unlike a lot of uh, my mentors and, and, and training experiences, I actually started working with clients under this model where I do allow them and I ask them to reach out in times of need. That does not mean that I will always be available between sessions, but this definitely means that I want to hear from them and I will get back to them as soon as I can and do everything I can to help if uh, they feel like it's necessary in between sessions. Um, with time, and the, the time is a question uh, in terms of how long does it take, and it varies, but with time, my hope and my work is that um, their kind of attachment scripts, the kind of narrative they carry with them about what happened in this scary, sometimes sad, anxiety-provoking world when I need help. Who's going to be there for me? If they can develop an expectation that I, the therapist, will be there for them, then they can also know how it feels uh, to have someone by your side and then seek that type of relationship above and beyond the relationship they would develop with me or any therapist for that uh, for that matter uh, in their own lives and and this this is the attachment work really uh, across the lifespan but especially adolescence and above developing a new or adjusted set of expectations where I can trust someone but I also can feel how it is to trust someone at times of need and then go and try to have more of those experiences with more figures in my own life. Yeah. Uh, uh, Dr. Drew Pinsky always puts it uh, in a way that uh, he basically says that brains need other brains to grow. And I, I, I always, I always go back to that when it comes to 
um, you know, uh, hosts of different mental health things that pop up that we try to address on our own. And so often it, it always turns back towards some sort of relational piece of, of psychology, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, well, uh, we're out of time. Thank you so much. Uh, for being on today. Uh, it, was, it was a very interesting uh, topic that I was really excited to to have a chance to speak to you about. Um, Dr. Orr Dagan, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Ryan. For more on OR, visit ORDAGAN.com. That's O-R-D-A-G-A-N.com. Or follow him on Twitter at Dagon underscore OR. You may also want to go back and check out episode 24 of this podcast on parenting, featuring Dr. Camillo Ortiz, who coincidentally is a colleague of OR's at Long Island University. If you enjoy this podcast, please share an episode with two of your friends. Follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter at WDWDTPod. As always, feel free to email me with comments or guest suggestions at Why Do We Do That Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that? <laughs>